And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to them, uh, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Let's pray. God, we have uh, never seen anything like this, that you would give us such an amazing love, mercy, kindness that we do not deserve, and that you would be so powerful as to form all creation and hold it in your hands. And God, you are unlike any other. We cannot imagine the extent of, of who you are and how powerful you are and your kindness and, and your thoughts. They are so far above us. They are so far beyond our mental capacities and our emotional capacities. But we thank you for the way that you have revealed yourself to us and that we can know a little bit about you. And we wait and look forward to the day when we can know more, know you completely. And we will be changed into your likeness and we will see you for who you really are. We thank you for um, this life, this time on earth, God, that you have blessed us with, that you have given us many friends. And Father, we pray for all of our friends and our family, our family in Christ, that you would comfort those that need comfort and bless and help those that are weak and that the sick would find their strength in you and that you might heal them, Lord. And we pray, God, for, um, for our land, for our country, Father, that you would continue to guide uh, our governments in your hand in, in we know that you, everything that is happening is, is by your sovereign will and so we just thank you that you are there in all of that God we pray for peace and strength for each one of us in this situation that we live in in every situation that we find ourselves in this week we pray that you would be the center of our thoughts, that you would be the, the impetus behind all of our motives, that you would be uh, 
that you would be the forefront of, of our priorities, the first of all of our priorities in this week, Lord. We thank you for this morning that we can study here your word. We thank you that we can learn about you. And Father, I pray that you would bless Leighton as he speaks to us and that you would help us to um, receive and, and implement this teaching into our lives in a way that glorifies you and that is truth uh, that is, is uh, corresponding to the way that this word is, is being uh, portrayed to us. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. What a tremendous gift to be able to worship together with you today and then to see all these young ones uh, heading to be uh, taught the word of God. And we get to do the same today, don't we? A few weeks ago when I had the opportunity to speak, we looked at five stories that end Mark chapter 1. That sermon was called Jesus Has a Good Day. And it's because it's kind of set up like his first day on the job. Everybody loves him. They like how he was doing stuff. They want to follow him around. It's a tongue-in-cheek title. It's borrowed from Bill Mounts. But it conveys an idea that we all get. The first few stories in the narrative of Mark show acceptance, praise, a positive response that links them all together as more or less Jesus' first day of ministry. Today, as we begin Mark chapter 2, we are looking at what Mounts calls Jesus has a bad day. It's a turning point because now, in these next five stories, there's resistance, there's disdain, and ultimately, there's a plot that begins here uh, to kill Jesus. If we were to ask those children that just left, what are your favorite children's stories from the Bible? This one would probably mark somewhere in the top 10. We like stories like this. They're interesting, something wild happens. And we especially like this story because it's a parable. And a parable is a short story with one main point and a twist at the end. A zinger. It's a fantastic, sorry, it's fantastic because the end is shocking. Jesus forgives. The man walks. All are amazed and glorify God. This story makes the list uh, because it's larger than life. It's a living parable. Parables are stories that play out differently than we would expect. So you can pretty much always say of a parable, this is how it should have happened. So in the case of our story, if things were ordered a little different, there wouldn't be as much contention, but there also wouldn't be as great a story either, would there? So here's what I mean. Reworked, this is the story. Jesus is teaching, the house is packed, four friends uh, make a hole in the roof and lower down a man. This man cannot walk and reordered, Jesus would say, get up and walk. And then the man does and then he would say, and your sins are forgiven. All the people would praise God and the scribes can choose to be mad or not, whatever. 
It's simple. No controversy. That's the story we expect. But instead, Jesus flips the situation around. He meets the man's spiritual needs first by forgiving his sins. This allows a pregnant pause to linger in the room. And everyone's stunned. No one talks like this. Not even priests. Not even prophets. They can't outright forgive sin. They might announce forgiveness based upon a sacrifice and repentance, but no human being is in the position to just grant it. So the people look about. The scribes' anger bubbles. And they almost can't hold it in. Their minds are screaming. Who can forgive sins but God? The thing is, they're right. They're prophetic, even. They point out the controversy. They actually point out the crux of the whole Bible, the crux of all human history, the fulcrum of the whole of Scripture. Everything pivots on this, this very reason that Christ came to earth. Who alone can forgive but God? And yet, who just forgave sin in this story and sealed it with a miracle? Jesus. And we are forced, like the crowds, to ask, what can this mean? The book of Mark starts with a proclamation. It starts the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then the rest of the book goes on to describe why and how this is true, that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus has the right forerunner in John the Baptist. He is the one that the prophets foretold of. God tears heavens open at Jesus' baptism slash coronation to announce him as his beloved son. After being tested in the wilderness by the devil, he begins his ministry of teaching and restoration in which he proclaims repentance and actively shows what God's new type of kingdom reign looks like. The big lesson of chapter 1 is of Jesus' authority. He has the authority of God. Those he calls follow him. He heals the impossibly sick and suffering. He casts away demons and they have no choice but to obey. And he teaches the truth about God and his kingdom as one who has authority because it turns out he is one who has authority. And that's where today's story, today's living parable, finds its rub. Jesus has authority, and the people who want authority, or think they have it, having already altered religion to make God small, they rail and writhe at what they see in Christ. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days it was reported that he was at home. This first verse doesn't say much on its own, but considering the verses before it, we have a stage that is set. If we look back, Mark 1, 44 and 45, Jesus has just healed a man with leprosy. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news 
so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. Now the next verse, Mark chapter 2, verse 1, says some days later Jesus returns to Capernaum, his home base of operations, and knowingly he's come to face the crowds again. Verse 2, many were gathered together, so there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. So the crowds were now in his home. This is not a culture of privacy or individuality, but things just became a lot more intimate. Earlier, there were so many people pressing against him that he couldn't move around town freely. Now things have intensified. In this story, Jesus can't even move about his home freely. And that sets up the scene that lands this story in the top ten list for Sunday school kids, maybe for you and me. Verses 3 and 4. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And then they had made an opening. When they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Immediately, we fix, fixate rather on the destruction. There's dust. There's chaos. Stuff is raining down upon people. Who's going to pay for the tar and shingles? As a little guy, I marveled at how they knew where to dig the hole. They lowered him right in front of Jesus. How many other times did this story play out where the same thing's going on and they lower the guy behind Jesus or in the pantry and nothing happens, never gets talked about. Four men carrying a fifth fight through the masses, ascend a roof, excavate for a skylight and lower their friend down in the midst of the throng. And when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And with those five words, Jesus rescues that man's life. All the while, he fixes his own death. Jesus sets in motion his crucifixion. Those five words put him on a collision course with the scribes and with the Pharisees. Even today, Those five words divide true religion from all other man-made religions. And for you and me, those five words are the very foundation of our faith. Son, daughter, child, whom the Father calls. Your sins are forgiven. Praise God that that very same gift of faith that brought those five men to Jesus still calls the dead to life through the cross. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And this is how we are introduced to the scribes in Mark. We've heard of them earlier, chapter 1, verse 22, and they were astonished at Jesus' teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. They were recorders. They just repeated what they were told. But now we meet them. 
these keepers of the sacred text, the transcribers of the words of Moses, the ones who knew the letter of the law. And after this pregnant pause, the calm before the storm, those scholars in the old ways can't help but burst out in accusation blasphemy based on a truth that they don't understand. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now I'd like you to hang on to this question. Who can forgive sin but God alone? As we work backwards. We just read Mark chapter 2, verse 2. And there were many gathered there so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. What was Jesus doing? He was preaching. Let's look further back. Mark 1.38. And he said to them, let's go on to the next town that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. Why did Jesus come? To preach the word. What was Jesus doing? Preaching the word. Let's look further back. Mark 1.14 and 15. After John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming, preaching, the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What were the scribes saying in their hearts? Who but God can forgive sin? What was Jesus preaching? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Translation, repent for who but God can forgive sin. And I'm convinced that this is what Jesus was preaching the morning that the sun shone down through the roof. Repent, for who but God can forgive sin? Handing the scribes their supposed grievance on a silver platter. But it gets better. Verses 8 and 9, And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit what they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to a paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and take your bed and walk? Now, Jesus doesn't outright say this. Okay, okay. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. I'm the Son of God. And if you think about it, that really clears up a lot of questions that you've been having. No way. He just presses in deeper to the hardness of their hearts. Scripture says, perceiving or knowing what they were thinking, Jesus asked, why do you question these things in your hearts, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or rise up, take up your bed and walk. As a kid, I remember counting on my fingers. Rise up, take your bed and walk. Your sins are forgiven. But that's not what this is, right? This is a rhetorical question. Like, girls, did you brush your teeth? Or, who ate all the cheese? <laughs> or, do you love me? That's not a rhetorical question. The answer is always yes, more than the sun and the moon and the stars. It is a rhetorical question, because God does both. Which is easier for God Almighty? To heal or to forgive, the answer is he does both. He heals and he forgives because sin and sickness have been linked together since the garden. The only difference is that one can be seen by people, experienced, validated. And the other, forgiveness, is inward. 
it's harder to scientifically validate. It takes a lifetime to prove, bear witness to. So what does Jesus do? He puts the cart before the horse. He does the invisible first. He deals with the paralytic's most important, most pressing need, his spiritual state. He deals with his sin. And then he deals with his legs. And there's the zinger. It's the twist of the parable. It's only after proclaiming the forgiveness of sin that he works a physical miracle. When I was 10 or 11, dad put up a basketball net above our garage. And from that day forward, the whole neighborhood met at my place after school. My friend Steve was the smallest among us. And at the end of like supper time or whatever, he would take the last shot. He'd stand at the foot of the driveway and he was a little guy, so he'd have to like that. And he'd say, I'm the greatest basketball player in the world. Now, when an 11-year-old announces he's the greatest basketball player in the world, everything stops. That's not something you just dismiss. That's a serious thing. I'm kidding. Of course not. Except Steve often made that shot. It was amazing. Way back at the free throw line. And it wasn't his boasting that made us take notice. It was his success. Not that Jesus is boasting. What sounds like hyperbole is actually stone-cold fact. Jesus can forgive. He is God. But the proof is in the pudding. What seals the deal is Jesus shows his power to forgive by demonstrating his power to raise the crippled. The healing floors everyone, gives credence to his words of forgiveness. Jesus, in fact, goes on to explain it. 10 and 11. But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. It's as if Jesus is saying, only God can forgive sin. You're right. And so that you will know that the Son of Man is the Son of God, I forgave this man his sin, and I healed his paralysis as proof, as plain as day proof, to show you more and more the extent of my power. You know and have seen my authority in preaching and in casting out demons. You have seen my power to heal and to restore, and now you know that I have the authority to forgive sin. And so the man stands both forgiven and healed. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. And this is true on many levels. I couldn't find a healing of paralysis or the crippled in the Old Testament. That was just a brief thing. You can challenge me later. Uh, but this is not a common thing. That is, that is beyond what their experience was. In the Old Testament, it does say that this kind of healing will come when Israel is restored, though. When God's kingdom comes in Christ. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6 say, Then the eyes 
of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. More than seeing a lame man walk, the point is that Jesus forgives. And no one ever saw forgiveness of sin without a blood sacrifice. The wages of sin is death. In the Old Testament, either you died for your sin or a lamb. Now Jesus granted this man forgiveness of sin, but where was the sacrifice? Scripture says it's Jesus. As the New Testament sets forth, either you die as punishment for your sin, or Jesus dies to take that punishment. Romans 6.10, 1 Peter 3.16, and here's Hebrews 10.14. They all show that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice for sin. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus' death on the cross for the forgiveness of sin is effective across all time. The saints of old, this crippled man, you and me. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, says John the Baptist. Really, really oversimplified. The gospel exists to show that Jesus is God incarnate. This living parable does that in spade. He heals like God. He warrants obedience like God and forgives like God. But you still might ask, why is it God who has to forgive? Why must forgiveness come from God? When I wrong you, and it's going to happen, sorry, and you forgive me, which I hope you will do, is that not genuine forgiveness? And in a relational way, yes. But in a cosmic, in a slate-clearing way, no, not even close. Because even though you might have been hurt, it was not you who declared what is right from wrong. David's confession in Psalm 51 is key to explaining this. Verses 3 and 4, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. In this psalm, David confesses to both murder and adultery, which irreconcilably hurt Uriah, Bathsheba, the nation of Israel. But here, David says it is God alone that he has sinned against. Everyone else was involved, that's involved was wronged, but it was God's standard that was broken. God's law was crossed. And because of that, it is front and foremost God whom David sinned against. I've used this example before, forgive me. Uh, I tell my daughters, on Sunday, you may not run around the church. They do it all throughout the week with their friends. On Sunday, don't run around through the church. But when they do, they are wronging you, but they are disobeying me because it is my standard. What God deems righteous is righteous. What God deems sinful is sinful. 
It is God who holds both condemnation and forgiveness then in his hands. God sets the standard. So if there is to be any forgiveness at all, it is God who will provide the means. And the sacrificial system of the Old Testament shadows Christ's ultimate sacrifice, which ultimately defeats sin. Why do we need forgiveness? Earlier I said that Jesus addressed the crippled man's most pressing need first, his sinful state. And you and I often look at our lives, our shortcomings, our difficulties, our pain and sufferings, and we think healing, elevation out of a bad situation, is what we need most. Like the world around us, we tend to see our salvation in having a better life, more money, a better marriage, perhaps less pain, no cancer, or often just some silly little trapping or trinket. That's what will make my life better. But all of it is temporary. Everything physical is passing away, a vapor, hevel. What we actually need is deeper, spiritual, nothing that we can muster on our own. The great need of man is the forgiveness of God, redemption from the sin that binds us. I forget, and you do too. My great need is for a forgiving God. You see, daily I forget how big God is. And when I do, it's easy to slip into a comfortable lie that I am big, that I am the center of my life, that this life is about pleasing me. And when I am big, then my sin is small. It's like using a telescope backwards. Because when I'm big in my eyes, everything else becomes small, most especially God. The world tells us to keep that telescope backwards. Keeps us blind, keeps us looking at comforts and money and fame, influence, something other than the great almighty. Scripture shows us the true picture. It shows us how big God is. And because of that, how big our sin is, how big our rebellion is, how small we ought to regard ourselves in relation. This parable shows us that Jesus came to forgive and that forgiveness is our first need. Jesus knows all your needs. He died to meet your greatest of needs. Offering forgiveness in his shed blood and healing in his covenant grace. Your response then is obedience, dependence, trust in a faithful God and a sufficient Savior. Praise the Lord, we serve a God. Let's pray. God, this is not just a child's story. It is a story for adults. It is a story for people like me who forget how big, how mighty, how glorious you are. I think of my hurts and my pains and I put them in front and I forget my great need is forgiveness. Lord, I pray that as a community, this is what we would be about. We would seek your forgiveness. We would seek you.
that when we gather, when we walk, when we eat, we would talk about how big you are and how great our need is for you, and we would encourage one another toward love. Lord, I thank you for Christ, that he heals, but more so, that he makes alive that which is dead. Amen.